There's some interesting research that suggests that, you know, a picture of one starving child will get more donations than a picture of even two starving children. And that's because of the nature of empathy and that empathy fatigues quite easily. But if you can adapt uh, or take a different perspective that's more in line with compassion than empathy, uh, it doesn't have the same fatiguing effect that you just think I should regard all beings the same way that they're all deserving of life, they're all deserving of a certain amount of well-being. I'm Malcolm Keating, and you're listening to Sutras and Stuff. Today on the podcast, how does encountering Indian philosophy make a difference in our thinking about morality and justice? This episode is the third in a series of conversations with philosophers who have taught Indian philosophy at Yale and U.S. College in Singapore. It's an unusual liberal arts college where students first encounter philosophy through a global two-semester sequence, one which includes not just Indian philosophy, but also Chinese philosophy, Islamic philosophy, ancient Greek and Roman philosophy, and works from European traditions. Because this academic experiment is ending in 2025, I wanted to hear from professors who came to learn about Indian philosophy by teaching it in this global context. Most of them were experts in other areas of philosophy first. So what did they learn from this experience? Did it change their understanding of themselves, of philosophy, or of the world? Ah, okay. So my name is Catherine Meiskins, uh, and you can call me Kat. I'm a lecturer here at Yale and U.S., and I work primarily in political philosophy and applied ethics. Kat has written on Confucian ethics and elder care in Singapore. She's written on the relationship between human rights and health and on how the effective altruist movement has ignored the importance of systemic change. Starting in 2022, she'll be a researcher with the Asia Research Institute at the National University of Singapore. Okay, so Indian philosophy specifically, I never really studied it academically until I came here to Yale and U.S. and had to as part of our common curriculum. Um, but I had encountered some of these texts that we use before because I got a yoga teacher training. So they have some of the same things where you have to read the Bhagavad Gita. So um, when you say you do ethics, right, that's your main area of expertise, uh, either in your yoga teacher training or in the course, are there any connections that you saw between these texts and their concerns and your own research, like ethics or your interests, like uh, yoga teacher training? Shanti Deva's arguments I find really interesting from a moral psychology perspective. So that's not really directly related to what I do, since I do mostly applied ethics, but just in my own thinking about life or like looking at that connection between what I study or learn and how I actually go about living. Shanti Deva is a Buddhist philosopher living in the late 7th to early 8th century common era, and he wrote a meditation manual which has become extremely influential in Tibetan Buddhism. It's called the Bodhicharya Avatara, or the Guide to the Bodhisattva Path. Some people call it the Guide to the Awakened Life. It's a blend of philosophical argument, striking imagery for meditation, and Buddhist ritual practices. I think Shanti Deva's arguments in particular, um, this thing about anger and, and trying to uh, make your mind like a block of wood was really interesting for me. 
Yeah, so Stoicism is not my main area of academic research, but it is something that I, I read and try to apply in my personal life. So, yeah, that overlaps with the um, moral psychology readings. And, and also, I've been finding a lot of interesting comparisons with Shantideva's arguments. Um, he makes claims that it sound very stoic in many ways, this idea that uh, it is always foolish to be angry. Similar claims to what the Stoics would say, where you're only really injured if you believe that you've been injured. And that, in fact, it's you who's doing the injuring in that case by accepting this impression. It ends up sounding quite similar to some of the passages in, in Shantideva's text. And yeah, so they sort of align and overlap in their guidance. They get there in different ways. One of the ways that Shantideva gets there is by appealing to the fact that people who irritate us are themselves subject to causes. And so our being angry at them, and not the cause, is irrational. Shanti Deva was a master of using striking imagery to drive his points home. In the chapter on patience, he says that getting angry at the person who is striking you with a stick isn't helpful. It's better to be angry at the hatred that causes them to strike you with that stick. And really, he says, being angry at all is pretty useless because it'll just harm these violent people who, in fact, just need help to stop being angry in the first place. But you might think that Shanti Deva's advice focuses a lot on the individual. So I asked Kat. So I'm curious, as someone who works with bioethics, uh, you're working a lot with the level of policies and systems and things. And I don't know if you see any tension or any relationship between these pieces of individual advice for managing your own suffering and the importance of how you're seeing things. And yet we're inside of these systems. Uh, there's healthcare policies, you know, there's people who are suffering for reasons outside of their control. You might want to say, well, we should try and change things. But on the other hand, you also want to say, well, we should recognize that we're a cause of our own suffering. Do you ever think about that kind of possible tension there? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, that is a, a big t tension that gets brought up uh, every time I have a conversation about these topics, especially with students. It's like it's usually the first thing that they're sort of alert to is like, but how can we fight oppression if it's just about our own suffering and if we're just making ourselves mad by, by accepting the impression that we've been insulted or something like that. And so to that, I think that what I often say is that when you are in a state of calm, if you can bring yourself into a state of calm, like these texts, like the Stoics and the Buddhists uh, would recommend us to, to achieve that kind of state, you can actually be a better activist in the world, I think. I think you can see things more clearly. You might be able to act more out of compassion than out of empathy. So that's an interesting distinction there. Like uh, psychologically, empathy can be very narrow focused. So speaking of health and uh, human rights, things like that, there's some interesting research that suggests that, you know, a picture of one starving child will get more donations than a picture of even two star starving children. And that's because of the nature of empathy and that empathy fatigues quite easily. But if you can adapt uh, or take a different perspective that's more in line with compassion than empathy, it doesn't have the same fatiguing effect that you just think I should regard all beings the same way that they're all deserving of life, they're all deserving of a certain amount of well-being. And it's not that I have to feel any special empathy for this one person, or even for myself, but you can just recognize that this is something that is important for every person or every living thing. 
I think the other thing that I find valuable about both Stoicism and Buddhist philosophy is the kind of humbling aspect of it, that there's this emphasis on trying to not contribute to harm in the world. So a lot of our activist instincts are, are quite like optimistic, but also kind of they can be a little egotistical where you think that you know the right answer and you have the, the recipe to address this injustice. And then all you have to do is go, go make it happen in the world. And this other perspective has been very valuable to reflect on in my own life and in, in relation to the kinds of work that I do as well to just recognize that maybe the first priority should be to stop contributing to bad systems or to stop contributing to harm. And that's already quite burdensome when you start thinking about it. Yeah, I'd imagine then that for Shantideva, where there's a lot of concern with suffering, that there might be some overlap there, some interesting connections, uh, since you deal with maybe suffering and thinking about applied ethics and bioethics. Yeah, so... Um, a particular interest to me in my work is the human right to health. So this idea that we should be caring about the health and well-being of everyone. And so particularly in Shantideva, he makes these arguments about trying to foster like, or trying to reach that state of enlightenment for all beings or having compassion for all beings. So these, that shows up in like arguments for something like a universal human right to health because so specifically for his arguments he talks about how you can't reach enlightenment yourself unless you reach it with everyone in some sense because you're all part of the same whole so that's something that I've actually been looking at a lot with discussions about the human right to health and and how that should guide policy and particularly in the area that we are the era that we live in now with covid you see how irrational these different borders are, because in fact, everyone's health is affecting everyone else's health. So that kind of lens to look at things with is very helpful or enlightening. So one of the famous arguments that Shantideva gives that philosophers are often thinking about is the argument that we shouldn't have ourselves as an area of special concern on the grounds of some essentially metaphysical ideas. And it sounds like thinking about, for instance, the current pandemic and the idea that we'll either ourselves as an individual or as a nation that that I really should just be concerned about myself in terms of maybe having vaccines or taking care of health. It sounds like that just doesn't make sense given, well, the way that the world is. Yeah, so that is exactly the kind of reflection that it, it sparks in me when I when I read something like that is just how our pursuit of self-interest at a certain point, like with that kind of individualistic assumption becomes nonsensical, starts leading you down these really honestly stupid pathways. So thinking about health and well-being in a more universal sense to start with just leads you to better results in some areas. <laughs> yeah, I guess a last question maybe is, is there anything else that we haven't said that you think would be interesting, uh, especially you know, for folks who maybe haven't studied Indian philosophy, either professional philosophers or just ordinary folks who haven't studied it, who don't know where to start and maybe aren't sure about starting. Uh, do you have any thoughts for them? I think maybe I'll just reflect on some of the things that I thought of while uh, encountering some of the Buddhist texts uh, or the yeah Buddhist texts from um, the previous semester, particularly the questions of King Melinda and then the Nyaya Sutras are the ones that we um, use. So this seems to be like, uh, 
like they have different answers to that no self question. Like, is there a self? Can you be confident that there's a continual self? Like, uh, is this a useful term or not? And so that one is one that a lot of the students complain about sometimes. But honestly, I really love it. So I had, like I said, I had come to the Buddhist philosophy from a from a Chinese perspective before encountering it in this Indian text. And I had basically kind of convinced myself into thinking, oh, there, there's really no self. It doesn't doesn't make sense. It's a concept that it's just a, a placeholder concept, essentially. And so to see this really lively debate in the history of Indian philosophy with the opposite view as well was cool. And it made me challenge that belief again to say like, wait, maybe there is a self. Maybe I should commit to this more. I'm going to interrupt the interview just for another second to observe that Kat's response is similar to the other philosophers I've interviewed, like Brian Van Norden and Andrew Bailey. I interviewed them for episodes one and two. They also found debates on the metaphysics of the self challenging for their own assumptions, and it's one of the places where they got pulled into Indian philosophy. Anyway, back to the interview. And that was a side of the philosophical conversation that I, I'm just very glad that I was able to see. Yeah, a whole sort of world of more philosophical discussions that are going on than you think of if you just study the Western tradition. Really lively debates, really good, interesting arguments. Yeah, very rigorous stuff happening in this other area that people neglect too often. <laughs> yeah, and then with the no-self versus self view, of course, with the Bhagavad Gita that you've mentioned and the yogic approaches, there's a question as well of what kind of self went we'd be talking about. If there is a self, is it an individual personal self? Is it something more expansive? And and how are we maybe related to this underlying reality that it just opens up a whole floodgate? Yeah, yeah. Thinking about consciousness. And then, yeah, I mean, for me, sometimes I think about that in connection with Western philosophy as well. So even like Kant's concepts of the phenomenal versus the noumenal world. And like, how do you arrive at this idea. I mean, there seems to be some interesting convergence there on like what, what is ultimate reality. And then, yeah, it gets really trippy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, thanks for your time, Kat. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you.